The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south and the transcendent power of God touches earth in the humility and love of Christ. Here and now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country and beyond. We gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily this day are offered in the praise of God for our congregation here within Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later around the globe. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership and service in our midst, and as the spirit moves come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
May we pray. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers, and because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you, give us the help of your grace that in keeping your commandments we may please you both in will and deed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to a time of confession, we pause to beckon the help of God's grace. But for the grace of God, we would not be. But for the grace of God, we should not love. But for the grace of God, we could not speak. But by God's grace, here we are. We live and love and speak. Let us seek, let us beckon, let us pray for the guidance of God's grace this and the days to come. This day and every day, let us pray. have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Beloved, hear good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks. A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 1 with the antiphon. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees 
planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Glory to you, O Lord. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
seated. At age 85, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, was asked the chief end of being human, the meaning of life. He responded, you are made to be happy in God. Today, his Methodist church is roiling in unhappiness, heading toward a special general conference in St. Louis next week to struggle as has every such meeting since 1972 over the humanity of gay people. Two modes of reflection beyond the procedural, administrative, governmental, disciplinary, and connectional ones that tend to dominate or predominate in these meetings deserve some sermonic attention this Sunday. One is theological and one is pastoral. First, a theological perspective. We are grateful for the open, broad-minded traditions of our church, especially our theological traditions, the spiritual waters in which we have learned to swim from prone float to butterfly, and especially the Wesley quadrilateral, that four-verse hymn to Jesus as our beacon, not our boundary. As we prepare for this 2019 conference, we could perhaps give shared attention to our sources of authority across the United Methodist Church. At our best, our love of scripture shapes our love of tradition and reason and experience. We are lovers and knowers too. Yet we are ever in peril of loving what we should use and using what we should love, to paraphrase Augustine. In particular, we sometimes come perilously close to the kind of idolatry that uses what we love. We are tempted for our love of Christ to force a kind of certainty upon what we love, to use what is meant to give confidence as a force and form of faux certainty. It is tempting to substitute the security and protection of certainty for the freedom and grace of confidence. But faith is about confidence, not about certainty. If we had certainty, we would not need faith. That is, your love of Christ shapes your love of scripture. You love the Bible. You love its psalmic depths. Psalm 130 comes to mind. You love its stories and strange names. Obedidim comes to mind. You love its proverbial wisdom. One person sharpens another comes to mind. You love its freedom, its account of the career of freedom. The Exodus comes to mind. You love its memory of Jesus. His embrace of children comes to mind. You love its honesty about religious life. Galatians comes to mind. You love its strangeness. The Gospel of John comes to mind. You love the Bible like Rudolf Bultmann loved it, enough to know it through and through. You rely on the Holy Scripture to learn to speak of faith and as the medium of truth for the practice of faith. Around our common tables in family, church, and community, we share this reliance and this love. We all love the Bible. I have been studying and teaching the Bible for four decades, and the fascinating multiplicity of voices here, there, the interplay of perspectives, present, absent, near, far, unknown, known, religious, unreligious, have a common ground in our regard for scripture. 
We all may affirm in our own ways Mr. Wesley's motto, homo unius libri, may I be a man, a person of one book. But the Bible is errant. It is theologically tempting for us to go on preaching as if the last 250 years of historical critical study just did not happen. They did. That does not mean that we should de deconstruct the Bible to avoid allowing the Bible to deconstruct us or that we should study the Bible in order to avoid allowing the Bible to study us. In fact, after demythologizing the Bible, we may need to remythologize the Bible too. It is the confidence born of obedience, not some certainty born of fear that will open the Bible to us. We need not fear the truth however it may be known. Luke may not have had all his geographical details straight. John includes the woman caught in adultery, chapter eight, but not in its earliest manuscripts. Actually, she, poor woman, is found at the end of Luke in some texts. Paul did not write the document from the early third century bearing his name, 3 Corinthians. The references to slavery in the New Testament are as errant and time-bound as are the references to women not speaking in church. The references to women not speaking in church are as errant and time-bound as are the references to homosexuality. The references to homosexuality are as errant and time-bound as are the multiple lists of the 12 disciples. Did you ever try to get the list just right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and after that, it is a free-for-all. The various 12 listings are as errant and time-bound as the variations between John and the Synoptic Gospels. Our Methodist discussion this next weekend in St. Louis does not occur within traditions which affirm the scripture as the sole source of religious authority. We are neither Baptists nor Calvinists. We do not live within a sola scriptura tradition. The Bible is primary, foundational, fundamental, basic, prototypical, but not archetypical always, and not exclusively authoritative. As an example, many synoptic passages present an idealized memory of something that may or may not have happened in the way accounted somewhere along the Tiberian shore. Luke is writing 55 years after the ministry of Jesus. What do you remember from 55 years ago? Nor were they written for that kind of certainty. They were formed in the faith of the church to form the faith of the church. They are, as Walter Brueggemann once put it, stylized memories. You love also the tradition of the church as well though with a scornful wonder we see her sore oppressed. John Wesley loved the church's tradition too, enough to study it and to know it and to seek its truth. One central ecclesiastical tradition of his time, the tradition of apostolic succession, he termed directly a fable. Likewise, we lovers of the church tradition will not be able to grasp for certainty in it if that grasping dehumanizes others. The Sabbath was made for the human being, not the human being for the Sabbath in our tradition. Our linkage, for instance, of the gifts of 
heterosexuality and ministry, however traditional, falls before grace and freedom. We roundly cajole our Roman Catholic brethren for always and everywhere requiring universal combination of the gifts of celibacy and ministry for ordination. You may love God or a woman, but not both at the same time. But then we turn around and by the same logic require universal combination of the gifts of heterosexuality and ministry for ordination. You may love God or your partner, but not both at the same time. It is theologically tempting to shore up by keeping out, but it has no future. Equality will triumph over exclusion, just as the gospel ever trumps tradition. Gospel first, tradition second. It is coming like the glory of the morning on the wave. You love the mind, the reason. You love the prospect of learning. You love the Lord with heart and soul and mind. You love the reason in the same way that Charles Darwin, a good Anglican, loved the reason. You love its capacity to see things differently. Of course, reason unfettered can produce hatred and holocaust. Learning for its own sake needs the fetters of virtue and piety. More than anything else, learning must finally be rooted in loving. Do we still hear the one thing requested throughout the book of Psalms? To inquire in the temple. <sighs> Inquiry. So, we learn. The universe is 14 billion years old. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. 500 million years ago, multicelled organisms appeared in the Cambrian explosion. 400 million years ago, plants sprouted. 370 million years ago, land animals emerged. 230 million years ago, dinosaurs appeared and disappeared 65 million years ago. 200,000 years ago, hominids arose. Every human being carries 60 new mutations out of 6 billion cells. Yes, evolution through natural selection by random mutation is a is the reasonable hypothesis, says Francis Collins, father of the Human Genome Project and author of The Language of God and, strikingly, a person of faith. Yet, 38% of Americans today reject evolution. It is tempting to disjoin learning and vital piety, but it is not loving to disjoin learning and vital piety. They go together. The God of creation is the very God of redemption, and their disjunction may help us cling for a while to a kind of faux certainty, but their conjunction is the confidence born of obedience, and their conjunction waits for us on the shoreline of the new creation. You also love experience. The gift of experience and faith is the heart of your love of Christ, and you love Christ. Like Howard Thurman loved Christ and loved the mystical ranges of experience, so you do too. You love experience more than enough to examine your experience, to think about and think through what you have seen and what you have done. But 
A simple or general appeal to the love of experience in our time is not entirely appealing or loving. It is not experience, but our very existence, which lies right now under the shadow of potential global violence. We are going to need to move our focus toward a balance of religious experience with existential, existential engagement in our time, in our world, in our culture. For example, to have any future worthy of the name, we shall need to forswear preemptive violence. How the stealthy entry of such an ethical perspective could enter our national civil discourse 2002 through 2019 without voluminous debate and vehement challenge is a measure of our, of our longing for false certainties. Our existence itself is on the line in discussions or lack of discussions about violent action that is preemptive, unilateral, imperial, or unforeseeable. One thinks of Lincoln saying of slavery, those who support it might want to try it on themselves to start. Not one of us wants to be the victim of preemptive violence. We may argue about the need for response and even for the need of some kinds of anticipatory defense. But preemption, it will occlude existence itself. Our future lies on the narrower path of responsive, communal, sacrificial, prudent behavior and requires of us, in Niebuhr's phrase, a spiritual discipline against resentment. There are indeed theological temptations in an unbalanced love of scripture, tradition, reason, or experience. So let's face them down. Let us face them down together. Let us do so by lifting our voices to admit errancy, affirm equality, explore evolution, and admire existence. The measure of our Methodist ministry today in the tradition of a responsible Christian openness is found in our willingness to address errancy, equality, evolution, and existence in our rendering of the meaning of scripture and tradition. So first, a theological perspective. Then second, a pastoral perspective. We are grateful for the magnanimous, loving people whom we have known in the experience of pastoral ministry, who have embodied and awaited the new creation. Jan and I went to London in late August 2017 to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. We had not been there for several years. Yet the memories and ghosts of earlier visits quickened quickly once we had landed. We had taken a church group through London in the year 2000. One parishioner then in her mid-80s, along with her husband, struggled to move her luggage along through customs back then. I could feel her alongside us in customs again summer 2017. She sang in the choir. She led in the service ministry. She volunteered to answer the office phone. In her growing up years, she had ridden along with her mother to Methodist gatherings in New Jersey to sort out the shape of the WSCS, the Women's Society of Christian Service. She remembered as if it were yesterday the mission work in China before it ended. 
When asked about her service, her giving, her happy singing, and her faith, her Methodist faith, she invariably said, we just don't want to leave anybody behind. That was her way of speaking about the divine inclusive incursion into the orb of the human condition by the way of the guidance to leave no one behind. And she very much meant, by the way, in that, to include gay people, the LGBTQIA community, in the loving evangelism and stewardship of her beloved church in its own frail attempts to live into the new creation. We just don't want to leave anybody behind. On our recent London excursion, once we were settled into a hotel near Westminster Abbey, other ghosts and memories emerged. Alongside by the mind's eye sauntered long dead Ralph Ward, our one-time general superintendent, the bishop who took a group of us in 1972 to London and into the Abbey. He made sure we saw the Methodist sites. He arranged a dinner at Methodist Central Hall recalling Leslie Weatherhead. The superintending minister of Central Hall moved us, moved us to tears, even those of us only 17 at the time, speaking of the Second World War. Central Hall, he reminded us, had hosted the birth of the United Nations. That summer, Jan and I worshiped at Westminster Abbey, our feet resting on the memorial to William Wilberforce, and then went across the street to see the hall again. In 1977 or so, Ralph Ward, by then removed to New York City, hosted some of us who were by then seminarians in the same city at a Friday evening gathering at Washington Square United Methodist Church to support ministry with gay people. He and his Manhattan district superintendent, if memory serves, the Reverend Bernie Kirkland, presided with grace and love this work is crucial to the future life of the church, said Ralph Ward. Some years later, after his retirement, Jan and I saw Ralph and Arlene in the narthex of Riverside Church after worship, which concluded that day with the singing of love divine, all loves excelling. Finish then thy new creation. We also sang that hymn at the funeral of Arlene Chapman in Watertown, New York, in the snows of 1989. Her husband, Bruce, a BU undergraduate and then Yale Divinity student, along with my dad, took me to my first major league baseball game at age eight in Cooperstown, New York. The last place teams back then, American and National League, were conscripted to play once a year upstate as punishment for their losing ways. One of the teams was, every year, of course, the Mets. Driving home, I foolishly waved my new Mets hat at a passerby on Route 20. The wind blew the hat away, but Bruce turned the car around, and we found the thing. In 2011, at annual conference, Bruce, by then in his 80s, spoke quietly and gently into the microphone, saying, in 1980 and 1984, I was a general conference delegate I opposed the inclusion of gay people in orders and marriage. Others did too. How utterly wrong I was. How foolishly wrong we were. Bruce still supports Boston University with an annual gift to Marsh Chapel. 
And as a pastor, Bruce could tell you what every pastor knows who has at least five years of good working experience. Virtually every extended family system in Methodism and beyond has somewhere at least one gay person in it. I asked Bruce a year ago what he would teach seminarians about ministry after his own 60 years of experience. He said, stay close to your people. Stay close to your people, he said. Jan and I have had the honor to serve in 10 churches, one district, one university pulpit, and several general church efforts, including some promising ones in preparation for this 2019 special general conference next weekend in St. Louis. Every congregation we have served has had gay women and men in it or in the extended families therein. That any of these good people have stayed at all in connection with our connection given our exclusion of them in marriage and ordination is truly a wonder. I love my church and I'm staying with it. Born and baptized a Methodist, I will so die and be buried a superannuated preacher. I am not giving over the church I love to a mode of exclusion contrary to the heart of the church in which I was raised and have lived and served. But we should be mightily circumspect about what bigotry against gay people has already done to us. I pass over the innumerable women and men who have left ours for ordination and other denominations. I pass over the hurt to evangelism and stewardship that comes with ribald exclusionary doctrine. I pass over the diminishment of membership, particularly in the congregations of the U.S. North and extended North, due to young adults, especially millennials, who sense the homophobia in our sanctuaries and find another place. Here is what I mean. This is a spiritual issue, not one of numbers, a theological issue, not one of members, a biblical issue, not one of bodily strength, a homiletical issue, not one of disciplinary interpretation. This cuts to and cuts into our soul. Gay people are people, but we preach otherwise. God loves gay people, but we teach otherwise. In Christ there is no male and female, but we argue otherwise. Such spiritual, theological, biblical, and homiletical malignancy and mendacity is crippling us at the core. Nevertheless, a lifetime in pastoral ministry has provided Jan and me with many snapshots of grace touching the lives of gay people, that grace being the beachhead of God's incursion into life. Here is a young man, age 19, in the rough, poor, rural, upstate New York border country, realizing slowly his identity, struggling with his family, his church, and himself, and talking slowly to a novice minister in the snow of February 1982. Here is that same pastor, a bit older, attending a community dinner in his subsequent city neighborhood, seated with eight women. No, he suddenly realizes, seated with four bright, happy, earnest, loving couples, September 1991. Here is the minister calling on a recently retired school teacher and her partner, long-time and long-suffering servants of God and neighbor and members of a United Methodist Church. 
listening as they are crying and crying out in bitterness over the ignorance and exclusion they have known in a large, purportedly accepting city, 2004. Here is a minister of the gospel, new to university deanship, employing and, employing and deploying an openly gay campus minister to serve across a large campus, one with a liberal history and spirit that nonetheless had never posted and filled that particular position, 2008. And here he is in September of 2017 offering prayers at the BU School of Public Health for those who ministered to and those who died of AIDS 30 years earlier, often without willing pastoral care from their churches, to repeat. Any competent pastor who has done the minimum two dozen or so weekly visits over at least five years knows full well that almost every family system near or far has within it gay women and men. This is not somehow an issue out there long ago, far away, foreign, peripheral, or minimal. Many of you in the pews of Marsh Chapel this morning know precisely and poignantly what I mean. And over these years, you have graciously endured from this pulpit, from me, two dozen sermons similar to this one. Unresolved, the issue will hobble the ministry of the Methodist Church across the globe. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified starts with God's love, a preliminary incision to curtail the divine love and thus the church's mission by excluding, dehumanizing, and imprisoning gay people in a pseudo-biblical jail constitutes the articulation of another gospel, not that there is any other gospel. At age 85, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, was asked the chief end of being human, the meaning of life. He responded, you are made to be happy in God. Today, as Methodist Church is roiling in unhappiness, heading toward a special general conference in St. Louis next week, to struggle, as has every meeting since 1972, over the humanity of gay people. Coming to this crucial juncture next weekend, these two modes of reflection, beyond the procedural, administrative, governmental, disciplinary, and connectional ones that tend to dominate or predominate in these meetings, deserve some sermonic attention this Sunday, one theological and one pastoral. May the spirit of the living God fall afresh on us We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord.
Dear Lord, we come to you with much on our collective and individual hearts. As a community of faith, we lift up the lives of Clayton Parks, Russell Beyer, Vicente Juarez, Josh Pinkard, and Trevor Wayner, all who were murdered this past Friday in the Aurora, Illinois shooting. Lord, we pray that their lives be remembered by their loved ones and friends. May their untimely deaths remind us to love our neighbor as ourself each and every day. We pray that the collective concern on our hearts be transformed into action. Turn our feelings of disillusionment and heartache into a vision of hope and love for all people. <clears throat> Regardless of gender identity, racial identity, sexual orientation or birthplace, guide our actions towards love, not hate, courage, not complacency, hope, not fear. We pray that our individual concerns for a loved one who is sick, for the loss of a friend, for the pain of mental illness, for the sufferings of a divided world and nation, be heard by you, O God. Be with all of those on our hearts and minds in this moment. Lord God, as we bring to you the concerns of our lives, we also give thanks for the opportunity to worship as a united people. We give thanks for the music we have experienced this morning. We give thanks for Marsh Chapel. We give thanks for your presence in our lives. We give thanks for the life that you have given us and for the life everlasting. As our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. welcome you again to Marsh Chapel on this bright and sunny wintry Sunday. Thank you for joining us as a part of our community of worship today, whether you're here in the sanctuary listening on the radio or live stream on the internet or later via our podcast. 
For those of you joining us in the sanctuary, we invite you to fill out your name and contact information in the red pads at the end of each pew toward the center aisle. This will help us to get to know you better and you to get to know one another better. After the service, all are welcome to join us for our weekly coffee hour downstairs in the marsh room for food, warm drinks, and even warmer company. As a reminder, today is the last Sunday of our non-perishable food drive in, the, in conjunction with the School of Theology for the Brookline Food Pantry. The pantry will be collecting uh, the don donations later this week. Thank you to all who participated. In observance of the President's Day holiday tomorrow, the Marsh Chapel offices will be closed and reopen on Tuesday morning. While Tuesday will be a BU Monday for classes for students, regular programming of Create Space and Global Dinner Club will take place on Tuesday afternoon and evening. For all other news and upcoming events, please visit our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as the chapel website at bu.edu chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. Now as the ushers wait upon us for the offering, may we remember that it is a gift and a discipline to be a giver.
Heavenly God, you have given us riches beyond measure. We can only return a fraction of what we owe you. But we ask, Lord, that you will bless our offerings and help us to use them wisely in your service and for your glory. Amen. the good you can at all the times you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can do all the good you can the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and always <laughs> 